Hello, and welcome to a new podcast for the Lancet Respiratory Medicine. I'm Gavin Cleaver. Uh, there's a new paper that we've got out on uh, multidrug resistance tuberculosis and the use of Bedaquilin. And I'm delighted to be joined on the line today by the author of one of the linked comments accompanying the paper, Dr. Jennifer Furren. Dr. Furren, why don't you introduce yourself? So my name is Jennifer Furren, and I'm an infectious diseases physician and a medical anthropologist. Uh, with almost 25 years uh, working directly on the problem of uh, drug-resistant tuberculosis. Um, my current affiliation is as a senior lecturer at Harvard Medical School in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine. Uh, and I work as a consultant for a number of organizations doing projects focused on uh, actually starting uh, patients with drug-resistant TB on treatment, in particular with the new drugs. And I focus on vulnerable populations uh, such as people living with HIV and children. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. So let's kick off by uh, talking about the, the tuberculosis drug, Bedaquilin. It has a rather kind of turbulent history. So first off, could you please summarize the controversies surrounding it for us? So Bedaquilin is actually the first new drug that we've had that was developed to treat tuberculosis in almost 50 years. The drug itself was new, but also the experience of having a novel chemical entity uh, and figuring out how best to understand the data that was gathered around it and then translate that data into policy and practice uh, was a bit of a challenge uh, for the TB community um, because we'd never done this before. Um, and so there was great excitement in 2012 uh, when the U.S. Food and Drug Administration uh, approved bedacoline or recommended bedacoline for the use of treatment of drug-resistant tuberculosis. There were some controversies, however, around the drug, and I think these largely came from the fact that uh, the TB community at the time had almost no experience uh, with randomized control trials uh, or with using new drugs. And so I think there was a misunderstanding on the part of many people uh, involved in drug-resistant TB about bedaquiline and how it should be used and what the data from the phase 2B trial showed. Largely, the controversy surrounded the fact that uh, in the phase 2B trial, um, there were higher rates of cure and lower rates of failure in the group that got bedaquiline added to a multi-drug backbone regimen compared with the group that got placebo. And overall, successful outcomes were statistically significantly better in the bedaquiline group. However, there was one exception. Uh, the mortality rate was actually higher in the bedaquiline group compared with the placebo group. So there were 12 patients in total uh, that died uh, during the course of the study and its follow-up, and 10 of them died uh, in the bedaquiline arm, and two of them uh, were in the placebo arm. And rightly so, uh, this made uh, people uh, concerned. And so there was hesitation uh, around the use of bedaquiline because of this higher mortality rate. I think what people often forget about when looking at the mortality rate comparison is that the other outcomes across the board were better for bedaquiline. Um, and uh, the mortality numbers were actually very small. Um, so there were 12 patients who died or participants who died during the course of the study and 10 of them in the bedaquiline group, as I mentioned. But these are small numbers. And, you know, upon further assessment, um, none of the deaths could be attributable to the drug itself. Uh, but because the drug does have a long half-life and uh, it's known to prolong the QT interval, I think people were very cautious at first about using the drug. I think the other thing that was missing 
from some of the assessment on the part of the MDRTB community was the context um, in which bedaquiline was going to be used. You know, we're talking about drug-resistant tuberculosis, a disease that has a 50% treatment success rate for which there are relatively high rates of morbidity and mortality associated with it. So when you put uh, the mortality rate in that context, I think it becomes much less alarming uh, since we're talking about a disease uh, that has such poor outcomes. You know, if we were talking about uh, a common infection or the common cold, I think there would be great pause around using the dapoline, but we were talking about a very, very deadly disease. And so uh, I think weighing the risks and benefits uh, of what we had from the phase two trial of the Dacoline, it was clear uh, that the benefits outweighed the risks in spite of the, the increased mortality seen in the trial. But this mortality really sort of persisted as, as a little bit of a, an albatross, I would say, around the neck of the Dacoline. And it led to great hesitation, both on the part of the WHO to recommend the drug and on the part of countries to use the drug. All right, so talking to countries which use the drug, it's been widely used in South Africa in recent years, despite some of this uncertainty which you were talking about. So why is that? Yeah, so, you know, the South African situation is really an interesting one, and I actually think an exemplary one to follow. Uh, so many of the clinical trials of bedaquiline were done in South Africa, and so there was firsthand experience using the drug. Uh, at the same time, South Africa was really struggling with an enormous uh, burden of multi-drug resistant TB, further complicated by the fact that a large majority of people living with drug resistant TB in South Africa also have HIV, and their treatment success rates were terrible. Uh, you know, in some years, um, there's a 46% success rate in South Africa, and when they looked at their own data, you know, people on treatment for drug-resistant TB had a one in three chance of dying. Uh, and so those numbers are very startling. Uh, and I think rather than continue, you know, sort of with the old, let's just keep doing what we're doing and hope that this goes away, the South Africans took a long, hard look at their epidemic. And they did this with eyes wide open uh, and said, this isn't working for us. So what can we do as a country? And so when they looked at their situation and they looked at the potential for adding the Dacoline, uh, there was agreement among all these different groups that providing access to bedaquiline was necessary uh, if they were going to make any headway in dealing with the epidemic in South Africa. And so I think the South Africans took a very brave step. They did it, you know, under very carefully monitored conditions uh, with input from civil society, from survivor groups, from frontline clinicians, from scientists, and from policymakers and came up with a plan to roll out bedaquiline and actually see how it performed under field conditions, uh, which was really important. You know, the clinical trials are interesting, uh, but they have very strict entry criteria. And, you know, the patients most of us treat on a day-to-day -day basis wouldn't qualify to be in the trials. And the South Africans said, well, this is who we're treating, so let's go ahead and see what happens. Um, they did this with a great deal of caution uh, and care, um, but, you know, the, the uh, warnings about bedaquiline just didn't ring uh, as that concerning in the face of the, the really concerning um, MDRTB pandemic they were facing. So, you know, we hear a lot about this black box warning with bedaquiline, um, and it's true that the FDA did issue a warning that the drug could be associated with higher mortality rates. Um, but there's also a black box warning on canamycin. There's a black box warning on isoniazid. 
Uh, and really what a black box warning is about is about paying attention uh, and looking for these things when you're using the drugs. And that's what South Africa did. They started with a cohort of 200 patients uh, who were carefully monitored. Uh, when they saw the results from those patients, they expanded the cohort uh, to the entire country. And so I think what South Africa did and why they started using it uh, is that they were facing a really deadly crisis. Um, and they felt that the possible benefits of the Dacolene use in their setting outweighed the risks. And then they saw that uh, in practice in their own country. Uh, and I think this is really a great model uh, for how countries should be making decisions about using the new drugs and treating drug-resistant tuberculosis. We're not talking about, you know, a, a disease that people do well with. We're talking about a disease that has the same treatment success rate as Ebola, uh, only it's spread through the air, um, and it had become entrenched in South Africa. In, in this month's issue of the Lancet Respiratory Medicine, we have a study by Schnippel and colleagues which used an observational design, and their results kind of suggest that mortality isn't increased by bedaquiline. Could you talk a little bit about their findings, and do you have any thoughts about their study design? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the Schnippel uh, and colleagues paper will stand as one of the seminal papers uh, in the field of drug-resistant tuberculosis. Uh, it was an observational cohort study where they compared thousands of people who were treated for drug-resistant tuberculosis in South Africa without bedaquiline, and they compared them with thousands of people who were treated with bedaquiline, and their question was really one around mortality. Uh, you know, as we discussed, there was this concern about mortality from the phase 2B trial, uh, and they wanted to know, in our actual practice settings, are we seeing an increase in mortality uh, that we need to be concerned about? And in fact, what they found was the complete opposite. Um, that patients who received bedaquiline as part of their treatment through the South African National TB program had a decreased mortality uh, compared to patients who did not receive bedaquiline. Uh, and this finding was notable because most of the people who got bedaquiline were actually sicker. Uh, you know, in the early days of bedaquiline rollout in South Africa, it was primarily a drug that was given to people who had high levels of resistance or who had intolerance to medications in the standard uh, uh, regimen for treating MDRTB. So these patients actually had a higher degree of morbidity and you would expect a higher rate of mortality in that group. So the fact that they saw the complete opposite when the drug was used under program conditions, where you can't exclude you know, the patients who aren't gonna do well like you would in a clinical trial, I think the finding is incredibly striking. Um, you know, I think that, um, the, the country, um, as I said earlier, was very careful in how they rolled out bedaquiline, and they were committed, you know, to following and collecting good data on the use of the drug in their setting. And I think what they've given us uh, and shared with the rest of the world in this study and the paper that's being published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine is a, a very firm call to action that, in fact, when used under program conditions, uh, but dacoline can be associated with a lower risk of dying. Um, this is the first time we've actually seen a drug um, associated with a lower mortality rate uh, in the field of MDRTB, uh, and I think it's a very exciting uh, piece of work. The observational cohort study design uh, is one that is challenging. Um, you know, there are all kinds of biases that can be introduced. So in this study in particular, um, it may be that people who lived long enough to get bedaquiline 
are a population that's able to survive or what we would call a survival cohort. Uh, and there's always a, a risk that that could influence the results. Uh, there's also a risk that um, patients who got bedaquiline got more medical attention or, or a higher level of care uh, because everybody was, you know, um, giving a significant amount of time and resources to following them up. And so, you know, these are things that I think all of us have to take into consideration when looking at the results. But nevertheless, I think the results are quite striking. And I think it's actually, you know, a beautiful model to follow. When you look at the field of drug-resistant TB right now, there's a lot of talk about uh, political commitment. You know, we've committed to ending tuberculosis in a mere 12 years, uh, including drug-resistant tuberculosis. But there's really a vacuum in leadership in terms of where to look for how to do this, not just to make the statements or say the words, but how to do this. And I think the South Africans have given us a great model to follow for how this can be done. You know, they were incredibly open about what they were doing. Uh, they utilized the scientific community as well as the treating community, survivors, and policymakers to come up with a plan and a decision in a transparent way um, that's really transformative. And I think we can have a lot of confidence uh, in the experience with South Africa. If I were a country looking uh, to decrease my mortality rates from MDRTB, I would look there. Uh, I think this stands in you know, stark comparison to uh, the guidelines that are often issued through the World Health Organization, which are very opaque, uh, which seem to be driven by factors such as cost uh, and not just scientific factors, and where there's very little transparency. I mean, there's a big guideline development group meeting coming up at the end of July, uh, and the WHO um, won't even be transparent about things like how they selected the guideline members, how they selected the questions. And so uh, if one is looking um, for a, a new voice and a voice of real leadership in the management of drug-resistant TB, I think South Africa has firmly announced themselves as that group, and we can have great confidence that's what, that what's happening there. Uh, can happen in the rest of the world. Well, it's a fascinating particular case, and it's an awful lot for the field to think about. Uh, Dr. Ferrin, thank you so much for your time today. Sure, thank you for um, covering this really important piece of work.